Looking to start your own website? The first thing you need is a domain name, and the best place to get one is at GoDaddy.com. With your domain registration, you'll get hosting, a free blog, complete email, and much more. Plus, as a MuggleCast listener, enter code RON, that's R-O-N when you check out, and get your .com domain name for just $7.49 a year. Get your piece of the internet at GoDaddy.com. This is Professor McGonagall welcoming you to all to MuggleCast, hoping you enjoyed. Dobby, Dobby, come here. Yeah, Dobby. Yes, well, I'd just like to say how very pleased I am to introduce MuggleCast to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Because there is a place for pets to go to when they've been very bad. This is MuggleCast episode 196 for April 16th, 2010. Welcome, everyone, to MuggleCast, episode 196, here with Mike and Eric again. It's the wonderful MuggleCast trio. Um, we have lots of news to discuss this week. We have a... This is going to blow your minds. We have... This whole chapter-by-chapter chapter series for Prisoner of Azkaban, we've been doing three chapters an episode. This time, we're going to do four. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to do two. Two. Um, because we're timing everything around... The elusive grand episode 200. So this episode will have two chapters from Prisoner of Azkaban. Uh, then the next one will have two. And then the final one will have three. And then we'll be done Prisoner of Azkaban. All and that'll right. be like 199, right? Right, right. And then it'll time perfectly with... No, no, no. It, that'll be 198. And then 199 will just, you know, we'll be mess the around. new Deathly Hollows trailer. And then 200 will be our grand episode. It'll be like that extra day of school that, like, you know, you have, but you have yeah. no lesson, so you just mess around and waste time. We need time. a better title for 200. It's, it's our bicentennial, right? Yeah. Yeah, not just grand. Bi- well, bicentennial means 200th anniversary, so I like it. Like, I prefer to use it, bicentennial, but it doesn't really mean 200th show. It means 200th anniversary. So, like, you right. know, in 195 years. Close enough. Yeah. Well, like... I think it's the best way to describe it. So, well, uh, how about just during the episode 200, we'll just be like, every time we reference it, we'll just be like, episode 200! Let's uh, get into the show. I'm Andrew Sims. I'm Eric Skull. And I'm Mike Tannenbaum. Tannenbaum, what is in the Potter News atmosphere this week? Stratosphere. Wizarding wow. world. Are you watching the news? <laughs> Everything must be grand as we lead up to our 200th episode. Oh, I, I thought maybe you were watching the news with you talking about the atmosphere and the stratosphere. 
But then no, you think uh, that was going on with the... Was it a volcanic eruption in Iceland? Yes. Yes. That but anyway, the, we could talk about that another time. Yes. Uh, the first piece of news, and there is a lot of news this week. I know the last couple of weeks we've been struggling a bit, but we have a lot <laughs> so of news cozy. this week. Uh, back on April the 5th, Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling was at the White House to read Sorcerer's Stone to children as part of their Easter egg roll. And Thank you for clarifying that she's the author of the Harry Potter books. Some people need that clarification. <laughs> You'd be surprised, <laughs> Andrew. <laughs> we would get emails. Somebody would say, you didn't mention that J.K. Rowling was the author of the Harry Potter series. Well, you know. True. She is an author of a very strongly opinionated political piece now, so I didn't want people to get confused. <laughs> but anyway, during both of these readings, uh, Joe read from Sorcerer's Stone, specifically when Harry gets his wand. And uh, there was a question and answer session that followed both of these readings, and we got... Bits and pieces of information, some of it old, some of it new. And one of the major pieces that J.K. Rowling said was it's possible she could revisit the Potter storyline or the Potter world sometime in the next 10 years. Yeah. So what does everybody think about that? Obviously, I well, think the encyclopedia will be before that. Here's the thing. Back in 2000, or sorry, back in 1999, she said, hey, you know, maybe 10 years down the road, I'll write another Harry Potter book. So I, <laughs> I, I think she uses the whole 10 years thing as sort of like a barometer, you know, like a obviously she didn't mean exactly 10 years from now. She just meant down the road. She already lied to us. Once. She said 99. <laughs> she literally said in, in the late 90s. Maybe ten years down the road. I, I want to see a cited a source cited for that, Andrew. I'm but... telling you, I, I I looked it up the other day. I'll look it up again now. Oh, okay. But that's um you know, I just think it's nice to hear that she read at the White House. And she read from yeah. you know, she read from Philosopher's Stone or Sorcerer's Stone. So, you know, regardless, like she it's it's kinda like embracing who she is, you know. I mean, she yeah. read a book that she read because we just for so long we haven't really heard much, you know, radio silence, pen and paper, da 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 da. And then she comes up at the, you know, the White House Easter egg hunt, wasn't it? And uh, and reads Harry Potter. It's it's wonderful, and her story, you know, still affects young kids. And it's uh, it was good to see her like embrace that. Like I can't necessarily imagine her saying no, but I wouldn't have been like shocked. I don't know. Well, and I don't think that the, the encyclopedia is that far off. I think when she's talking about writing Potter again, she's talking about possibly developing the storyline a little bit more or writing more books about characters that have been introduced to us in the series where I think uh, the encyclopedia is going to be something more of a reference point. Yeah. And uh, giving us bits and pieces of information on things that may have been left out. Uh, of the seventh book. Now, she also mentioned that she's enjoying writing now, and there's a lot of speculation. What could that be? And she said it's something to be released in the not-too-distant future. And we got a very opinionated political piece that she wrote. I don't think that's what she was referring to, <laughs> considering no. that she was talking to children. So we right. should keep an eye out for something else in the next couple of weeks, months, probably. I think weeks is too soon, but I bet we'll see at least an announcement sometime this year. Um, getting back to what Eric said, he was looking for proof about Joe's 10 years 
uh, quote, back in 99 at the National Press Club, it was an author's luncheon. She said, the only reason you'll ever see an eighth Harry Potter book is if I really, in 10 years time, burn to do another one. But huh. at the moment, I think that's unlikely. Additionally, the following year, during an AOL chat in the year 2000, she said, if there's an eighth, it will be because 10 years down the line, I, I had a burning desire to do just one more, but I don't presently think that will happen. However, I think I might write a kind of Harry Potter encyclopedia and give the royalties to charity. So accept no substitutes. Wow. It's actually kind of ironic. Accept <laughs> <laughs> no substitutes because of what happened just a couple of years ago. Um, but thank you to Akio-quote.org for... For, for See, our, our show is so much so better when we cite our sources. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, usually I mean, that I, comes in the form of fan mail. <laughs> right, exactly. Hey, um, let's listen. It, it was very nice to hear Joe reading at the White House. Um, I pulled up some audio from it, so let's listen a little bit of Joe reading from Sorcerer's Stone. Peeling gold letters over the door read, Ollivanders, makers of fine wands since 382 B.C., a single wand lay on a faded purple cushion in the dusty window. A tinkling bell rang somewhere in the depths of the shop as they stepped inside. It was a tiny place, empty except for a single spindly chair that Hagrid sat on to wait. Harry felt strangely as though he had entered a very strict library. He swallowed a lot of new questions that had just occurred to him and looked instead at the thousands of narrow boxes piled neatly right up to the ceiling. For some reason, the back of his neck prickled. Ah. Thank you, nice? J.K. Rowling, for finally being on our show. <laughs> <laughs> An exclusive <laughs> reading here on MongoCast um, via YouTube. I don't know about you guys, but I just got really envious of her kids. You think her she, kids? Yeah. Do you think she reads to them at night? Like, reads Harry Potter? Well, as probably see. not her own books. Nah, I think that'd be kind of... Okay. I don't know. But, I don't know. <laughs> no, if she did audiobooks and sold them for charity, I would buy them. Yeah, she's got a great voice. She's, she's a great uh, reader. And who you else know, knows the story, you know? Right, of course, yeah. Yep. And uh, a couple other things that came out of this interview, or this reading, rather. Uh, interesting backstory, I thought, with relation to Hermione and how she was going to develop Hermione's character early on in the series, that she was set to be a neighbor of Harry's and that uh, I think it was her father saw Hagrid taking Harry from the house uh, in Godric's Hollow after the night uh, that Voldemort fell and the house was destroyed. Yeah. So that would have completely changed the context of the two of their relationship. They would have grown up next to each other. They probably would have been friends in some capacity, uh, especially after having both gone off to Hogwarts. So uh, I thought that would have changed the dynamic of the series a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I think I yeah. think that would have been a, a cool little change. Um, it would have been interesting to see how Harry and Hermione would have first met then in that case, like if they right. met like playing in the backyard or whatnot. Or in the girls' lavatory at the park. Yeah, okay. exactly. Well, I was actually <laughs> going to say something a little similar to that. Uh, you know, maybe he would have developed a little bit of a crush on her, you know, girl next door type of situation. You never know. Yeah. Yeah. Harry peered through the window and saw Hermione <laughs> in her bedroom window. 
<laughs> All right. I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of fanfics that could be written about that. <laughs> But then there'd be that whole, ah, uh, we've been friends all all along since we were, you know, just toddlers. We could never possibly be in a relationship. We're just friends. Ugh. We're snog- snogging in the cupboard under the stairs. If I've heard that once, I've heard it a million times. All right. Well, let's move on here in the news. Let's talk a little bit about the Wizarding World of Harry Potter's theme park. And two shows on television have done pieces now on this theme park. The first was Ellen, and that aired back on April the 2nd. She put together a six-minute video, and in this video we see the Hogwarts Express, our first look at Butterbeer, the shops at Hogsmeade, and one of the rides, Flight of the Hippogriff. And I wasn't too big on this video. Uh, It didn't really do anything for me, uh, but... uh, I guess, in the grand scheme of things, it was okay, and, and the kids seemed to enjoy themselves, so that's all that mattered. Well, briefly, what were your problems with it? Well, Ellen really didn't seem to know much about Harry Potter, and, and granted, that's going to happen with shows and celebrities that are going to be going to the theme park, and they're going to be doing uh, the, these types of press events, but I thought for somebody who seemed to be into it, Leading up to it, I, I thought she did a, a pretty poor job mm. uh, of her knowledge. And it's kind of something that showed up in The Celebrity Apprentice as well, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah. But she I mean, could have read up a bit. If you're a fan of Ellen, I think you like it. Like, I'm a fan of Ellen. And watching that, it was it was kind of fun. It was Ellen's style of, of humor. You know, she was messing with the kids. She was messing around in the park. Micah, I think you were just, like, bothered that, like, she was there and not you. (laughs) That must be it. No, I mean, like, you know, there's parts where she's saying spells or she's doing things and it it would have been that hard. In a way, yes, she is. But, I mean, would it have been that hard for her to use spells from the books? (laughs) She doesn't care, though. No, I know she doesn't care. But think about if you're producing it, you know, from your Universal or your, your your Warner Brothers, you want that because it stays true to what you're trying to create. That's true. And yeah. the kids, you know, like I said, they were excited to be there. I, at times, I, I just don't think that they kind of got what Ellen was trying to do, just like I didn't get what Ellen was trying to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and they... They looked a little bit scripted when they were talking about certain things, which I don't <laughs> doubt that scripted. that Warner Brothers or Universal came to them and kind of gave them these different points to talk about. I think that kind of stuff happens all the time. Um, and my big thing, and Andrew, I don't know how you felt about this because you're always a stickler for this stuff, but you could constantly see the crew from Ellen's show like running around with different props and they never cut it the right way. See, I'm a stickler for that in movies or something, but this was a very loose piece. It was just a loose, fun documentary style sort of segment. So I think, yeah. that, you know, to, well, anyway, we don't really need that. No, we don't need to break it down. <laughs> let's, let's move on to the celebrity. Apprentice. Yeah, and that aired back on April the 4th and th- they were tasked with creating a three dimensional traveling marketing tool essentially for the the Wizarding World of Harry Potter theme park and these Universal executives came to them and they wanted them to be able to sell the park in this small little traveling set so they could I guess take it to different places with promotional materials and get kids and get parents 
and even adults interested in this theme park and explain what it was all about. And I think that it was just funny to watch, to be honest with you, because a lot of them just had no clue about the series. And what was frustrating is uh, some of them made light of it, but they only made light of it in the sense that they didn't do enough to learn about the series and about uh, you know the canon and things like that, which you would think with any product that you're trying to sell, you should learn a bit about it in order to sound knowledgeable. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, the whole thing with this was NBC uh, owns Universal. So, you know, it was just natural for this sort of thing to happen. Uh, of course, you know, Donald Trump, this is like his millionth season of The Apprentice, so he was looking for something <laughs> new, and they had, there's something new down in Florida, Harry Potter. All right, let's do it. Get some yeah. kids to watch. It'll be great. Boom. It, it was. It was. It wasn't that entertaining, to be honest with you. I mean, it was funny watching them go through their demonstrations. But the, the it, for anybody who watches a Celebrity Apprentice, it, it's two hours every week, so it, it gets really drawn out and really boring. And I thought this might have been an episode where it was at least a little bit interesting. It wasn't. Yeah. Well, that's a shame. Yeah. But moving on, uh, the. Harry Potter the Exhibition has now officially opened in Toronto, and Eric, you went to it while I was in Chicago. We had a staff member go in Boston, and actually one of our transcribers, Shauna, went uh, to this event in Toronto. James and Oliver Phelps, who of course play the Weasley Twins, they opened the exhibit at the Ontario Science Centre last week and uh, there's a full report on the site i don't think there's much new to report on one of the key things though that we did learn is that there's going to be four north american locations and this is the third one uh so after what here in toronto the question is where it's going to go i'm guessing it's going somewhere on the west coast before it goes overseas there's only one more left in the u.s not the u.s i'm, North not, America. I'm not surprised north america north- that's ridiculous. Yeah. Why is it ridiculous? I mean, because yeah. it hasn't barely crossed the East Coast yet, and it's uh, and it's ready to leave. It's Andrew. been in Chicago, Boston, Toronto, and it's got one more place in the United <laughs> for States. Three That's insane. Mo- for three months at a time. Four months. Five months. Well, uh, the, the world's not ending. No, but the world is not ending, but the, but the world is also not just consisting of North America. And uh, maybe some uh, fans overseas, like in Asia... Um, want to see Harry Potter the exhibition? How about people in Nebraska? Shouldn't they get a fair shot at yes, seeing but they, the exhibition? They either drove to Chicago <laughs> to see it when it was in Chicago, <laughs> or they're going to be driving to Oregon or LA or somewhere on the West Coast to be later uh, speculated. Yeah, I think it's going to the West Coast. That's where it's going to go next. And it better. We'll see what happens from sense. there. It better. But remember, weren't there only, I mean, there are only, the locations were planned for like five years. It was going to have a five year run. It'll be extended. So it's like four locations a year. You know, I mean, they got quite a few places to visit, Andrew. There are. Yeah, but they they haven't been anywhere in the South, if you think about it. Right. They haven't been anywhere. (laughs) They've been Chicago, Boston. I'm telling you what, WB, I hope you're listening. If it does not come to Los Angeles, there will be a riot at the next location, a protest. I'll be there protesting the next location. If it's in Seattle, I will be there protesting that it's not in L.A. But, 
you know, they should really open up in like really far out places, like like the middle of the desert or something, and see how many people show up. Well, I'm no, also surprised they idea. didn't end up in New York at all, because you'd think that with yeah. the tourism that they get, I mean, they do an unbelievable amount of business. It has missed so many great places. There are so many cities in the United States where this would be huge. But honestly, if I had to comment on one thing about the exhibition that isn't good, it's the crowd control. Um, was always an issue. There are just too many children in there at one time that they let in who run crowd control in in chicago just didn't work and uh from the reports in boston same thing um you know they 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 may need to work on that additionally but if they open it up somewhere in new york i mean obviously like they're gonna let people in because it's it's money making but they just they they were never able to get the timing down at least when it was in chicago i'm speaking from personal experience and opening it up in new york city as opposed to boston i think would have just would just made the experience that much worse that it's that much more of a populated uh city well and and it has been extended and i think the chicago location right early on it was extended all of them have been yeah chicago and boston both did that so I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen in Toronto as well. I just want to say, actually, um, I went on the WB Studio Tour last week with my mom and brother. They have a really nice mini Harry Potter exhibit. They dedicated this entire floor of their museum to Harry Potter stuff, and they got costumes there. They've got uh, props. Yeah. They have a sorting hat. Really nice. So, I mean, that's sort of like the Harry Potter exhibit. Not as much stuff, but... One thing I did notice, they were missing one item. It was temporarily unavailable. It was mm. the Deluminator. It was Ooh. not there. So they must have brought it back for filming. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Or it's on the exhibition tour. <laughs> but the put-outer. I, I, yeah, the put-outer. I, I would assume it's it's back in uh, Leaveston. So a bit of movie news uh, to wrap up things this week. Uh, Deathly Hollows. Alan Rickman has finished filming his role as Professor Severus Snape. Uh, He did an interview with the International Herald Tribute, and he acknowledged that he is, in fact, done. And this is really the first big piece of of filming news that we've gotten where a major character is done. And I know a lot of people commented on it. They were sad. They were disappointed. I mean, I don't really get into that as much. But, you know, it it is all coming to a close in the sense that now, over the next few weeks, really, we're going to be hearing about more and more of the major actors and actresses in the series who are going to wrap filming for good. (laughs) I actually got a little sad when when you said that. Did you? Yeah, I did. That's a shame. I mean, you know, it it is sad to hear. Like, you know, we've been doing this podcast since 2005, back when they were filming uh, uh, Order of the Phoenix. Um, and to think, you know, four films later, they're finished. The entire series is just insane. Yeah, it's I unbelievable. Mean, d- what about Jason Isaacs wrapping up? I mean, doesn't he sort of count as a major Yeah, he does. He, he was probably the first, but I, I think... Alan Rickman kind of resonates a lot more with people because yeah. Snape is yeah. the character that he is. Honestly, he didn't have that big a role in the in the in the seventh book. I mean, at the at the end, it was a big deal, and and obviously, the ending is going to be portrayed is going to take a while to film, you know, to show in the movie. But um, you know, most of the book, he's he's not really. But in. you know, he has been on set for you know since the very beginning. You can't say that about Jason Isaacs and. Alan Rickman, just a great guy, and 
really into the role. He obviously does a great Maybe now job. he'll finally answer questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He doesn't have that answer to hide behind. Like, oh, there are children who haven't seen it once it's... Uh... Yeah. I don't know. Well, that's a shame. What other uh, Deathly Hollows news is happening? Well, our good friend Warwick Davis, uh, he had an, an interview uh, recently as well, and uh, he talked about how he first got the role of Professor Flitwick in the Harry Potter series 10 years ago, and that he's also going to be wrapping up in June. But was a, the most interesting thing that he said was that he was happy with the fact that Deathly Hollows was being split into two films because they're so rich, the stories themselves, and he believes that it's going to do the final book justice. And I thought that was interesting to hear an actor say that because so oftentimes you don't hear that. And he seems to be somebody who is really into the books, who has read them, and even admitted that he was disappointed because of the length of, of some of the other films that have preceded Deathly Hollows and the fact that his parts have been cut out from them. And that's why he's been disappointed. So yeah. he wanted more screen time, essentially. Right. I can't blame him. I mean, I've said it before. Like, what's so great about them splitting it into two is because this is their final chance, their final opportunity at taking these books and making them amazing films. So now they have two films for one book. And right. it's just an amazing opportunity they have. I think it really gave them an extra bit of motivation to say, hey, you know, we have this huge opportunity now. We get two films. We have all this extra time. Let's make it count. What else is going on? Riss Eifens, who's going to be playing Xenophilius Lovegood in Deathly Hollows, uh, he did an interview as well. A lot of interviews going on uh, the last couple of weeks, and he just talked about how excited he was to be involved in Harry Potter, that he made it in the final film. He, he said, quote, I got it, man. And <laughs> <laughs> he also spoke uh, about Ivana Lynch and working with her. And how great of an experience that was. So no, that's, that was interesting because he's talking about Ivana and he says, you know, whenever the set decorators or something would, would do something wrong, Ivana would like call them out on it and have them right. change. Uh, I think it's in particular, uh, or was that, I, it, when, when she's talking about her bedroom and she says there'd be more books, was that some, was that an Emma Tom, Emma Watson thing that no, I, I'm confusing news here, stories? Uh, that, he said, if there's a question on set and they have a plethora of researchers and people who've read the books, but if anyone needs to know any minuscule detail about anything that has happened in any Harry Potter novel from start to finish, they ask her, referring to Ivana. Yeah. Oh, and this is a bit of news that happened over the course of uh, the last couple of weeks. And look, people, we're very well aware of the fact that the script for Deathly Hollows was left in a pub somewhere in England. So, what do you mean you're aware of it, Micah? Did you pick it up? The story came out in a tabloid, and it, usually it's our policy to not post tabloid stories like that, so that's why we did not post it. We just, I, I don't know. What do you want to say about it, Micah? Well, you can stop sending it in to us because we know that it happens. <laughs> we probably have over 150 to 200 emails saying yeah. that this happened. We know it happened, but as Andrew said, generally, uh, we don't post that kind of news because it's tabloid. Who was it that left it in the tabloid? 
Who was it that? I think it was part of the crew. I think they generally oh. go out and drink regularly at this bar, and probably right. one of them or more than one of them had the script on them, and they just dropped it. And uh, luckily, it was returned to Warner Brothers. The only way it would have been new is is if it leaked out. <laughs> so that's why we didn't post it. If it had leaked part of the script, we probably would have run that until Warner Brothers told us to take it down. Right. Hey guys, here's the script. Take it while you can. uh, (laughs) Free copies of the script. Get them while you can. And speaking of movies, covers for Prisoner of Azkaban and Goblet of Fire Ultimate Editions uh, were released. They don't look that interesting to me. (laughs) Are you kidding? They added a whole color to Prisoner of Azkaban and they added yellow. You know, it was previously just blue. And they added purple to Goblet of Fire. It's fabulous. Yeah. Well, um, I I mean, listen, uh, when this whole set is going to be complete, it's going to be like this rainbow movies one through eight, like this rainbow of box sets. I think it's, um, you know, the covers are nice. What what can you say about them? Right. There's no release date yet. So, and we already know what's going to be contained. Right. Do we know about the, uh, we know the documentaries though, the special documentaries. Um, in Prisoner of Azkaban, it's going to be magical creatures of the series. Remember, these are the all-encompassing documentaries that talk about production aspects of all seven films. And they're just included, uh, one by one in all these films as they're releasing the ultimate editions. And right. part four is sound and music. And by the time part four is released, I, I, I really hoped that it includes obviously a documentary on the seventh and eighth scores. You know, for the for the final. Well, they're going to speak to each individual composer from the films in those. I, I would, I would be bet pissed so. if they didn't. Um, and one of the documentaries is going to be about. I yeah, I guess year four. Yeah, that is going to be. Hopefully, that'll focus on John Williams, Nicholas Hooper, uh, the the other ones. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, and Patrick Doyle, who was Patrick on the show, right? Don't I think we're gonna have him. some other stuff to look forward to as well in these ultimate editions. So I'm excited to see when they come out. I hope it's this year. I think it would make sense to release those around, say, November when Deathly Hallows Part One comes out. Yeah, just a guess. Christmas. Time. If I were a betting man, I would say they will come out uh, mid-November. All right, yes. and final bit of news. Somebody put this in here. I'm uh, guessing it was I Eric did. or Andrew. I no, actually. it wasn't. Believe in it fact, or not. I just I loaded <laughs> MuggleNet. Well, I just saw it on MuggleNet right now, and I am speechless. The reason why I said Eric was because I know that, that you're very into uh, the theater side of things. So Dan Radcliffe is set to sing, dance on Broadway in How to Succeed in Business, isn't there more? Without really Without trying. Without really trying. Without yeah. really trying. Yeah. So he will return to Broadway. Of course, he was on Broadway. Was a couple years ago now? Yeah. In Equus. Right. So Yeah, this is uh, good news. Uh, we found out about a few months ago that, that, you know, that, that this was a rumor. Apparently he was in talks. And then Eric went off fanboy on us and was like, oh, I've been in this play and blah, 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 blah. You had the same role that he's going to be? Or yeah. I guess we, yeah. Do yeah. you think he can handle it? Are you going to call him up? You should compare notes. I'm really <laughs> excited. No, I'm really excited. I'm not a big fan of theater as much as I am of this show. It's a really good show. You know, it's a little little soon to be reviving it, um, but I am not complaining because... Well, what do you, you mean, reviving it since since you did it? <laughs> no, 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 because they did it in 95. Right, you know, they did it right. in 1964 and then 1995. 
and sort of do it in 2000. Well, I guess it's well, they must years. feel passionately about it. I guess. Well, I, I think they could really do a good job. I mean, I, I, if Dan Radcliffe is, you know, the lead character is American, um, so they must, they must know have some idea of where they're going to go with it. Yeah, um, that's well, cool. I, Eric, we'll send you to. Uh, I I don't know what the what the term is for it. There's a special term for for when they screen these shows, but we'll send you to one of these. You guys can compare notes and, and you let is us know. Is that a promise? I mean, I'm serious about it because I'm very passionate about. Uh, you make this your production. way to New York. When's it supposed to uh, start on Broadway? 2011, spring 11. Oh, I bet tomorrow. Eric is going to sit down his, at his desk, hand write a letter to Dan, dear Dan. <laughs> This is Eric Skull from Muggonet. I was once in this play, just like you are, and I would like to offer some tips. In scene four, act B, paragraph C, letter nine, <laughs> you must jump. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, it's Eric, time to we'll, move on to the show. Uh, yes, please. Go, go ahead. <laughs> this is going nowhere. <laughs> Eric, good luck with coaching Dan. I think you could. And you should. All right, so that does it for news this week. Thank you, Micah. You always got your pulse on the uh, Harry Potter news wire. Yeah, there was a lot of news this week, like I said. There you go. Micah Tannenbaum, keeping an eye on the Potter news for us. <clears throat> Moving along, before we get to chapter by chapter, uh, we want to make a little announcement. As we said at the top of the show, we're approaching episode 200. And um, Eric is putting together a second MuggleCast remix. Now, the first MuggleCast remix um, took episodes 1 through 25 and kind of took the best clips and put them together to this techno beat. You can dance to it. and They, they play it in clubs from time to time still. It's, it's pretty cool. And... Eric, so Eric's doing a second one, but this one is going to be episodes 25 to 100. Or, yeah. sorry, oh, 100. Yeah. Okay. Episodes 25 to 100. What we're looking for is your favorite moments. We decided to involve the fans in this uh, gathering of clips because what you um, like from the... You, from these episodes of MuggleCast is going to be different from what we like. What we want is timestamps, not actual uh, audio clips of MuggleCast. The episode or number. Yeah, not transcripts either. Actually, the best way to do this is to listen. And what we're looking for specifically are moments in the show that you think highlight um, either our dynamic, like, you know, our personalities, uh, funny moments, you know, just moments that you enjoy listening to that you think would sound good with a little beat to them. And uh, actually, the best thing... Exactly. I said to Andrew and Micah, I think the best way to gear the listeners up to possibly contributing to this mix is to actually uh, make available, make re-available the original mix, uh, just to give you guys an idea. But I'd like to do something quite similar, um, you know, but basically a showcase of 25... Episodes 26 to 100. Remember, a lot of stuff happened between episodes 26 and 100. We were still speculating about book 7, guys. We had just... I mean, book 6 had just come out that previous summer, and we had no clue. So there's tons of stuff. We premiered chapter by chapter. We still had Kevin Steck as a host <laughs> on the show. Uh, a lot yeah. of things that just don't happen very much anymore. Uh, and, and episode 100 was our... Deathly Hollows midnight release episode. We recorded that hours before 
book seven was released in London. It was it was an amazing show. It was amazing. Um, so basically, this is for our two hundredth episode celebration, which is premiering in what June is it? Late May, early June, possibly. Early June. Early June. So that means uh, this is actually this has a time frame attached to it. So if you could. Take a le- you know, take an episode, um, any old episode of MogoCast on the episodes page, MogoCast.com. Look at the subject. If it seems interesting to you, you think it'll be fun, just listen to the episode. It'll take an hour. And if you hear anything funny that you like, please send it in to me. Uh, you can send it to eric at staff.mugglenet.com. Uh, just subject to your email, um, MogoCast Mix. And uh, please, I look really forward to the variety of your submissions. And we'll lay... We'll make a news post on the front page of MuggleCast.com with all those details yeah. again. And it'll yeah. be so less confusing. Visit MuggleCast.com yeah, the for The one thing details. I would add, too, is that this is a great opportunity. A lot of people talk about being able to go back and, and listen to some of our older shows. And because we do have a lot of new listeners uh, that have come on in the last five episodes or so, even last ten episodes or so. Uh, so this is really a great opportunity to go and listen and, and kind of see how things all started out. Don't laugh too hard when you turn on episode, you know, like 32 and you hear me. Hi, everyone. Welcome to uh, episode 32 of uh, MuggleCast. Uh, this is Andrew Slims podcasting from my parents' house. Uh, all right. Well, now let's get into chapter by chapter. This week, we're looking at chapters 16 and 17 of Prisoner of Azkaban. We'll start with chapter 16, Professor Trelawney's Prediction. The opening of this chapter reflects the mood that many students are feeling right now in in the real world. Uh, hints of summer that are in the air. And all anyone wants to do is get school over with, myself included. Summertime, baby. Let's go. Um, but right at the beginning of the chapter, the, 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 the whole summer spirit sort of fades away quickly when the trio learns that Buckbeak's appeal is coming up and an executioner is coming along as well. And, uh, they conclude that the ministry has already made up their minds. They're not going to give, uh, Buckbeak a second chance. It's just, boom, come on along executioner. It's time to, uh, get chopping. You know what I'm saying? And it's another example of how the ministry is so corrupt and can be so easily influenced in this example with uh, Lucius Malfoy. Yeah, I agree. And this is just one of those things, though, that's kind of hard to believe. I mean, there's a creature which has a protocol, essentially, for how you're supposed to approach it. And it's almost like Malfoy, for misbehaving in class, is rewarded in the sense that this execution is going to take place. It's just, in concept, just so ridiculous. And not only has the ministry, you know, made up their minds and they're going to execute Buckbeak, but the executioner is a fellow Death Eater of Lucius Malfoy's. You know, they're old Death Eater buddies. They sat at the pub and talked about killing mudbloods together. And honestly, I want to know who gave that guy a, the hatchet because he's this creepy Death Eater guy. And, it, you know, it was no shock when we saw McNair was, was one of the Death Eaters in front of Voldemort. And, you know, especially in the movie, he's this very creepy, dark, you know, figure, almost like a Dementor. And I just think, you know, it's, 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 it's really, uh, you know, suspect, I think, because yeah. it's, uh, darkness before there is, I mean, I just wonder why it was, how McNair escaped suspicion in the ministry this long to still hold the position of, being their executioner. Yeah, I mean, he goes from Death Eater to Executioner. It's kind of like, 
you're not really changing your job description much. <laughs> I'd like to know his story. In fact, uh, maybe that'll be the eighth Harry Potter book that J.K. Rowling writes in 10 years. And, and why Executioner? I mean, isn't there a spell you could just cast on the bird? Like yeah, exactly. The, I mean, if hippogriff? unforgivable spells are unforgivable and, you know, why sanction an Executioner at all? What else does he execute on behalf of the ministry? Yeah. Or, or lock him away in Petscaban. <laughs> What's so funny? That has to be the title of this episode. You've never heard of Petscaban? Joe references it in Goblet of Fire. Check it out. I will. Petscaban. Who guards Petscaban? Pet- the the Dementors. <laughs> that fell apart very fast. Why? Dementors. <laughs> Dementors. Is that... No, that's not good. I think it's brilliant. Um, anyway, um, so it's exam time, like I sort of said, and the students are uh, getting through their exams. After the Defense Against the Dark Arts exam, the trio runs into Cornelius Fudge with two representatives from the Committee for the Disposal of Dangerous Creatures. This bothers Ron that they're already here with a freshly tuned axe to the point where to the point where Ron wants to say something to them. But, of course, Hermione steps in and stops Ron from making a wise crack by nudging Ron hard in the ribs. What do you think Ron was going to say to them, and why do you think he didn't take into consideration the fact that his dad works for the ministry? He could have gotten his dad in trouble, too. His dad could have been executed. I mean, geez, with all these rules, it wouldn't surprise me. I think at this point, uh, on that particular subject, Arthur would have backed his son up. Um, You know, in the beginning of Chamber of Secrets, when they steal the car and, you know, Ron gets a howler for getting his dad into trouble at work, that's different because Arthur was doing something illegal. In this case, it's it's really a matter of, you know, the creature's innocent. This whole execution is preposterous. If Ron would have said something, I, I, I honestly, I think... Arthur would have backed him up. Yeah, standing up for what you believe in. I think that's what Ron was doing. And I agree with Eric. I think he would have been backed up by his dad. But I also think there's other times in the series that Ron acts without thinking about his father's position at the ministry because you always, and even Harry does the same thing too, if you think about it, because there's always sort of these moments where Harry will think to himself after an event occurs, oh, I shouldn't have done that because I compromised Mr. Weasley's job at the ministry, whether it's the Fort Anglia or something else. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder if Cornelius would have actually taken action if Ron did say something to them. I think he would have. Yeah, he probably would have just brushed it off. He's got bigger problems to worry about. Um, So moving along, Harry and Ron's final exam is divination. And during Harry's exam, Trelawney asks him to look into... Trelawney... Trelawney asks Harry to look into the orb and describe what he sees. Harry doesn't see anything, of course, but pretends that he sees a hippogriff. And Trelawney gets all excited because she believes he's actually having a vision. And Trelawney then asks if the hippogriff has his head uh, because of what was going to happen that day. And in keeping positive, Harry insists it does. Yes, it does have its head. He then mentions he sees it flying away which I sort of thought was a bit of foreshadowing because that's obviously what happens um, in this book after um, Buckbeak is freed. Do you guys think that's sort of a kind of a skewed uh, foreshadowing? It's it's definitely a showing of Harry's character because he's determined that, you know, what's 
going to ha- that that Buckbeak is not going to get killed, and he doesn't yet have the tools to prevent Buckbeak from being killed. He doesn't have all the facts. He doesn't know how he's going to do it, but he's determined that that you know he insists. And and Trelawney looks at him and says, "Well, obviously you aren't seeing the future." Then she gets she scoffs. I think you know when he insists that the that the that the hippogriff has its head. She says, "Oh, I must be mistaken," um, because she's sure that. The hippogriff is going to be executed, but Harry is is determined. He, you know, he he he's very insistent that it does have his head, that he can't, you know, think about it any other way. And uh, and yeah, so it, it is foreshadowing because Harry has that drive to to save the hippogriff. Ah, uh, that's true. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of things that happen in her class end up coming true. I think that's just sort of the comical nature of how she's written yeah. and her class is written. So Harry starts walking away, and because uh, he's done, when all of a sudden Trelawney snaps into prediction mode, uh, and when Trelawney wakes from her prediction mode, she can't remember a thing, despite Harry insisting that she had done it. The prophecy goes: the Dark Lord lies alone and friendless, abandoned by his followers. His servant has been chained these twelve years. Tonight, before midnight. The servant will break free and set out to rejoin his master. The Dark Lord will rise again with his servant's aid, greater and more terrible than he ever was. Do, Tonight, do, do, before do, do, midnight, do, the servant will do, set out do, 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 to rejoin his master. Do, 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 do. And Finn. <laughs> so, when Trelawney wakes from her prediction... She can't remember a thing, despite Harry, ins- Harry insisting she had just done it, and we, the reader, see it actually did happen. Was Trelawney doing all that for show, or was it a legitimate prediction, Micah? Was she making this no. up that she couldn't remember? I mean, we don't learn uh, about her ability, really, and the extent of it until Order of the Phoenix, but I think that this is a legitimate prediction. This is a legitimate prophecy if you will i don't know how much of a prophecy it really is it's more of a prediction and it ends up coming true i mean she gets into full seer mode here and you could tell that harry really believed what it was that she had to say particularly because sort of the change in her behavior it's kind of ironic that she doesn't even know that she is making a prediction when you know She's all about making predictions and wants so bad everyone to see that she's making these predictions, you know? Yeah, but her actual, the actual, it just, I, I think it, it speaks to a lot of things, but um, isn't there a, a moment in book five where, or maybe it's book six, where Dumbledore talks about the record of the prophecy, uh, of her first prophecy um, being, you know, stored at the ministry? Like, did somebody need to hear that and then report it in order for it to be recorded at the ministry? Or is she actually evoking, like, some, you know, quill and paper somewhere who are writing down what her prophecy is saying? Because if we're to take this as, a, I mean, a legitimate prophecy, like Dumbledore says, you know, she's only done it once before, uh, you know... Is is there something at the Ministry of Magic that's keeping track of this? Because we've seen the Hall of Prophecy, and it's loaded with prophecies. And do you think that every time someone you know goes into a trance and says it, that that it's recorded and and abbreviated like this? That's a good question. I mean, I don't know the answer to it. There's got to be a way of recording prophecies, and I think it's probably up to the person who's on the receiving end to go 
about putting it into the Hall of Prophecy. I don't know if you, you know, sign up for an orb and <laughs> take take out your memory and put it into it or something like that. Well, she, like that's the other thing about her having no memory that she said it. It's like almost for her own protection. Like you know, she's the one who predicted that uh, Lord Voldemort would fall. If if she knew anything about it, if she had any conscious knowledge of having said that, Voldemort would have found her and you know beaten it out of her. Uh, instead, he had to rely on you know somebody like Snape. Um, but. It, 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 you know, the other thing about this prophecy is that, you know, her, her ancestor was this famous seer. Uh, and, and it's almost like her ancestor, especially in the movie, you know, with the inhaling and all that stuff, it's like a, an ancestor, uh, is like speaking through her. Very creepy. Very creepy. Um, but it just made me think that, yeah. that she was kind of being possessed. Well, and, you the know. ancestor side of things, though, I mean, Cassandra was a, was a prophetess, I guess, who would always foretell the future, but nobody would ever believe what she said. And it's kind of interesting, because that's a little bit like what Trelawney uh, seems to be. In terms of her character, she... Well, not... I guess not, though. I mean, nobody... No, no, that's true. Nobody that believes what she, me, yeah. what she has to say. Yeah, except when it comes to the serious stuff. Then people take her seriously. So the trio learn that the execution is on and will be happening at sunset. Their only issue with going is Harry can't head out without the invisibility cloak. So Hermione, wasting no time, goes to retrieve it. When she returns with the cloak, Ron says... Hermione, I don't know what's gotten into you lately. First you hit Malfoy, then you walk out on Professor Trelawney, end quote. So what has gotten into Hermione? We sort of talked about this in earlier um, chapter-by-chapter installments for, for Prisoner of Azkaban. Is this all the schoolwork stressing her out to the point where she just refuses to take any BS? That's how I see it. Um, well, I think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that she's really passionate about this trial and saving Buckbeak because didn't she work so hard initially to ensure that Hagrid had a good trial? So maybe she takes it a little bit personally, even though the odds are immensely stacked against her from the ministry standpoint, maybe she takes it personally that uh, the work that she did just wasn't good enough on both the, the initial end and then on the appeals end. Yeah. I I honestly, I really think that's a good, Good point. Solid point. Yeah. I agree. And the school a little bit. Come on. Yeah. Give me some yeah, validation. No, I agree. School, right? I think she's burnt right. out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She needs some butterbeer. So after dinner, the uh, trio go to see... Yes. She does need some butterbeer. <laughs> a lot of it. Um, so after dinner, the trio head to see Hagrid. He is a complete mess, understandably. And they're all talking when, in a surprise twist, Hermione finds scabbers in an empty milk jug. Uh, but there's not much time for celebration, because Hagrid then sees Dumbledore, Cornelius, and the Executioner approaching. Um, Harry takes a look at Buckbeak, who, as Harry notes, looks like he's aware of something going on. Uh, and this is sort of when they're escaping uh, Hagrid's hut, right before uh, Dumbledore and company come in. So, do you guys think Bump- Buckbeak had possibly noticed the tra- time-traveling trio at this point? Um is that what he sees going on? I thought Joe should have made some references here to the time-traveling trio. So maybe this is it. I- I'm still very confused. I know we did an episode on time-traveling. It was very good, but I'm still very confused by how it all works. Well, isn't it the um, time-traveling duo? Doesn't, doesn't Ron it? stay in the hospital? Yeah. Oh, 
I'm thinking about the movie. No. Yeah. He, he stays, stays in the hospital, in the hospital movie. The movie. Cause, he does? Yeah, because Michael Gammon oh. keeps touching his oh, leg. Oh, yeah. You're right. You're right. <laughs> but anyway, that, that wouldn't make a difference. But to your point, yeah. maybe, I mean, these magical creatures have these senses, I guess, that humans don't. Wait, do you but mean I think he, he was already... probably scared, though. You know, yeah. He probably was sensing more the, the fact that his execution was approaching than anything else. No? Mm. Like, do you mean, did he already see them, or... Yeah, maybe did he see Harry and Hermione in 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 the woods, or like you know he noticed that something was going on behind him, not just you know what's going on in front of him. Let's let's say he he's facing towards Hagrid's hut. Maybe he hears something going on behind him, and it's Harry and Hermione from the future. Hmm. I don't Could know. Could be. I, I, it just would have been cool if Joe had some sort of hint at at you know what was about to happen in these next couple of chapters. Um, I don't know. Just thought it was. But yeah, I I think uh, I think Micah, you just said it. You bring up a good point. It could have been Buckbeak just sensing. Oh, geez, there's a guy with an axe coming up to me. Maybe uh, maybe I should shuffle around a little bit. <laughs> uh, so anyway, the trio leave Hagrid's hut, and Scabbers can't stop bothering Ron in his pocket. Hermione insists that they keep moving. When all of a sudden they hear the swishing of an axe. Dun dun dun. Okay, that, he's th- dead. He's dead. Or oh, is he? That was pretty cool. Um, in the movie, just the swishing of yeah, the axe. Yeah, it was. You know that that yeah. particular part. It was a long axe. There was a really long handle. I mean, I guess you need that to decapitate a beast that's gonna. You know, if it could reach you, it would kind of put up a fight. And this is so, actually absolutely. the point in the movie where she punches Malfoy, isn't it? Just about. Yeah, just about. It's after the execution because uh, he's joking. After the about execution, it. so a little bit yeah. of a different plot. But so we move on to chapter 17, Cat, Rat, and Dog. And as Andrew mentioned, uh, they leave the hut. They hear the swishing of an axe. And all of a sudden, who rounds the corner but Crookshanks? And as Andrew also mentioned, Scabbers was going crazy in Ron's pocket. And all of a sudden we get to the final round between Crookshanks and Scabbers and just an absolute melee of sorts ensues and Crookshanks attacks and Ron goes running off after Scabbers who is able to get out of his grasp and this whole scene though this could and they're obviously under the invisibility cloak uh, but this could have caused some big problems now if Fudge or Dumbledore had caught them because they're not that far away. Honestly, um, if it were like a confrontation, like do you mean with the dog present or just Crookshanks and Scabbers? Well, I mean, I didn't get to the dog yet, but either, I guess. Because I, I really like, I'm really curious because um, Dumbledore, as you see in the beginning of the the first book. You know, could kind of, t- well, he recognized McGonagall. I was going to say he could tell an animagus when he sees one. But, um, if it were a matter of Dumbledore, like, say he was walking the grounds or he confronted the trio with, you know, Crookshanks and I, 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 I don't know if at that point, you know, Sirius would have come for, I, I just, I don't know. But I, I think, I think Sirius could have, if he had wanted to, confided in Dumbledore. I really think he could have. 
uh, that Dumbledore would have heard, you know, been, been at least competent enough to, or confident in his own capabilities that he wouldn't have sent, you know, the Dementors, like, the first thing Fudge does in book four is get the Dementors to get, you know, Barty Crouch's soul sucked out so he doesn't cause any more trouble. Um, but I, I honestly think if, if at any point in this book Sirius had showed up in Dumbledore's office, um, and wanted to talk to him about it, they certainly could have examined Scabbers and found that the truth was, was, was there. So, so if Dumbledore would have, you know, come up to them on the, on the grass, I really debate whether or not Sirius would have showed himself. Um, but if, if, if he weren't in the picture, um, as per your actual question, I just think, uh, he, he he probably would have um, suggested... Well, just keep a, in mind what's going on at the same time, though, because while this is all happening, Harry and Hermione are freeing Buckbeak, and if Fudge turns around and sees Buckbeak is not there, and then at the same time, on the other side of the hut, you have you know sort of this melee going on, even before Sirius shows up, with Ron chasing after his rat, and Harry is there, and you know what kind of uh, situation is going to develop, potentially... Uh, because they're not supposed to be out of their dormitory in the first place. Oh, yeah, that's true. They're kind of um, throwing caution to the wind here. I mean, they do that a lot. And I don't remember exactly, but how does Crookshanks know that they're there? Because they're under the invisibility cloak. Um, I would probably pull that, play that up to the nasal thing, you know. But um, and you you can smell a rat. Dirty rat. That's true. You can smell it. You can always smell a dirty rat. Well, as you mentioned, Andrew, (laughs) uh, not Andrew, but Eric, uh, the Grimm appears, and now it's kind of like final round, take two, as uh, Sirius knocks Harry over, but he really shows no interest whatsoever in hurting him. And there's a quote when... About Harry saying, dazed, feeling as though his ribs were broke, Harry tried to stand up. He could hear it growling as it skidded around for a new attack, and he's talking about the dog. So I thought it was interesting that the dog's ribs felt as though they were broken. Um, you know, I I know it's about to be revealed who this dog actually is, but I thought that was a little bit of a hint that this dog is sort of... It's been through a lot. Yeah, exactly. This broken-down animal that, that's Wait, are kind you, of... You, I thought it was Harry that he, he... he Harry feels as though Harry's ribs are... No, broken. Harry... It's written very weirdly, but it Harry feels the dog's ribs as what? it's brushing past him. Oh. And it knocks him over, and then, then mm. he says that it feels as though those ribs were broken. And it's kind of nice in the movies. His ribs... Sirius's yeah. ribs visually are emphasized. Yeah. You can really see them, and you know, from a lack of nutrition. If um, they'd have put half that much effort into the werewolf, you know, <laughs> there yeah. would be there would no be, zipper. Yeah, you couldn't really t- you couldn't <laughs> no zipper. You couldn't really tell on on uh, on the werewolf. Um, he just looks like a black werewolf. But it's healthy. it's really interesting here because you start to get the sense that something is up because the Grim doesn't go after Harry. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And. um now, what ends up happening is the dog drags Ron by his arm, and Harry and Hermione, of course, follow suit, and they don't watch where they're running, and they end up running smack dab into the Whomping Willow. And Coincidence? 
this is this ends up being a very very weird scene in the movies because the willow ends up throwing them underneath its roots as <laughs> Look, opposed I, I to crookshanks they, they sitting on the little Ferris wheel ride. Yeah, what's it called? Like a little knot that crookshanks goes and sits on to let them in. I mean, I thought it would reveal so much more if they would have done that in the movies because it was shown that Crookshanks was sort of in league and had been knowledgeable about what was going on the whole time. I don't understand why they needed to be thrown around by the tree and magically, no pun intended, they end up, or by coincidence, they end up being thrown right underneath the roots. Well, for one, I mean, you know, there was no reference to anything special about Crookshanks in the movies. Nothing. And not in, certainly not in Prisoner of Azkaban. So I guess that's part of the reason. I think it would have been very cool to have something like that. That would have added a whole new level of um, of whimsical stuff to, to the movies in that you see that creatures like Crookshanks, which can't talk, you know, it, is, is suddenly able to, you know... She, she, she's a master of the forest, right? So to speak. Yeah, right. it's it's. I mean, it's a. Let's not forget, guys. I mean, it's a whomping willow, not like a a whirling. You know, will I? I just think get thrown around, and it's it's. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's. Well, come on, it's it's for movie but, entertainment purposes. It's action. I mean, honestly, at this point, like if if Dumbledore would have would have you know showed up just as like the dog were like dragging Ron across the yard, I think all three of them, cat, rat, and dog, would have been going to Petskaban. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, baby. Let's go, man. Let's go. We we learn that the pathway under the Whomping Willow is, in fact, on the Marauder's map, as Harry mentions, but not even Fred or George have gotten through. And this was kind of odd to me, because it's hard for me to believe that Fred and George would never even try and didn't see this as any sort of challenge to get underneath this tree. Am I right? It's... It, it's 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 pretty cool because earlier in that chapter we learned that there was a passageway under the Whomping Willow. But you know, Fred and George said, "Oh, but that one's you know conveniently blocked by the Whomping Willow." They were like, "We're not gonna." I mean, I don't know how widely known it is that Whomping Willows have a weak spot, or or even how they'd approach it. I mean, honestly, like Fred and George trying, I can kind of see them maybe trying, but it's a big tree and it packs a punch. Like, yeah, but honestly, they could also they, they get in trouble, so many, too. You know, people yeah, would see so them. Hey, guys, other... what are you doing? Oh, we're trying to get to the secret passage. In the middle the, of the yard. Exactly. <laughs> the tree, How do you yeah. know about the secret passage? Well, the map. You know, there are so many other ways out of the castle into Hogsmeade that I, I really don't think that it ever, you know, would have been. I mean, it's a challenge, but on the other hand, it's a big tree. Mm-hmm. Okay? And it's going to attack you. Yeah, I, I really think yeah. that they they just thought it was... Uh, coincidence or, or, you know, chance when in fact the real reason behind the willow being planted on top of the secret passageway is brilliant. Yep. Plus, it was cool to see Harry, you know, discovering one of the paths on the Marauder's map, you know, him being the first. Right. Well, Ron was the first, but. So. Uh, Harry and Hermione arrive in the Shrieking Shack, and they learn that the black dog is, in fact, Sirius Black. And there's this confrontation that ensues, and Black compares Harry's loyalty to Ron to James's loyalty to himself. And I thought that was you know, an interesting comparison. And then when he hears Sirius say, 
James's name, for the first time in his life, he wanted his wand back in his hand, not to defend himself, but to attack, to kill. And I was wondering, <laughs> is that a little bit of the Horcrux acting up in him, or is that just his pure no. emotion? Far too early for the Horcrux to be doing stuff. Yeah, it, uh, when I was reading this, definitely felt to me like emotion. That's Like, of course, he's so angry. Finally, he's facing the person who he thinks killed his parents. And he's like, oh, you know, it, I, you can't even put it into words. Right. It just, just kill. Absolutely. Um, so a battle ensues. And Ron shows tremendous loyalty to Harry by saying Black would have to kill all three of them if they wa- if he wanted to kill Harry. Right, he says, speak for yourself. I'm going to Honeydukes. Yeah. She walks out. <laughs> I'm out of here. He, it, Peace. It's just boys. comical. You know. <laughs> Do you think Ron actually would have like stood in the way of no, Harry? No, he's got a broken leg. He would have <laughs> <laughs> He, he would have limped true. over to Harry and then. Uh, yeah. He's all talk, poor yeah, guy. But that that goes to my point. I mean, is it practical to think that three teenagers, one with a broken leg, and all of them wantless at this point because Sirius used Expelliarmus to disarm Harry and Hermione when they entered the room, could they physically fight Black, even in a weakened state that he's in? I mean, Harry lunges at him, um, and, and the, the kind of the whole scramble ensues. But, I mean, seriously, no pun intended. <laughs> What do you guys no, I think, think they could have. I mean, honestly, like, how many, like, could they, could he really have defended him? Could Sirius have really defended himself before one of them, like, gouged his eyes out? You know, I mean, honestly, like, if three of them, if three of them jumped at him, you know, without a wand, does Sirius have a wand? Sirius has a wand. You know, what are he you going to do? What are you going to think fast, you know? I, I just, I really think they could have, I mean, and they, it's the effort, you know, A for effort that, that really counts. Right, so this scramble ensues, and uh, Harry is is trying to get his wand back, which Crookshanks is trying to prevent him from doing, uh, but Harry does end up getting his wand, and then turns on Sirius, but before he can do that, Crookshanks then jumps onto Sirius' chest to protect his heart from any curses, and I thought that was kind of interesting. That was very cool. It, yeah. That that affected me reading that reading that still affects me, um, because it's kind of way it's it's Crookshank saying there's more to the story. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And he seriously contemplates killing Black, and it, in the book it says Harry gripped his wand convulsively and do it now said a voice in his head. Again, is that his emotion or is that the Horcrux when it says? Okay, that do sounds it now. more like a Horcrux, but because because Voldemort isn't consciously aware of his connection to Harry until book five when he starts, you know, trying to use it and then trying to protect himself afterwards. Um, you know, do you mean, is it like the evil urges that the Horcrux would innately have? Yes. That- I don't, I'm not saying is it Voldemort. I'm saying is it sort of what we see in book seven where it's turning their, their attitudes towards each other. Huh? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it was the Horcrux. I think, when now listen i've never been in this sort of position so i don't i guess i don't really know um but i just feel like if you were in that position you would have some voice in your head cuz you're going to be contemplating it so there would be that little devil on the right side of your shoulder saying do it now right and just in the nick of time lupin enters the shrieking shack and he comes up to this room where Harry, Ron, and Hermione are facing off with Sirius, 
And once he gets up to the room, he asks where he is. And the realization dawns on him that Pettigrew was the secret keeper, not Black. Because Lupin realizes the fact that uh, Pettigrew hasn't revealed himself up to this point, but he has been showing up on the Marauder's map. And why wouldn't he reveal himself if he was, in fact, alive? The reason, of course, being because he, in fact, was the secret keeper, not Sirius Black. And in the movie, Remus and Sirius kind of make out at this point. (laughs) I love this scene in the movie. They embrace each other. They hug each other. Yes. Right. Yeah. Not so far as making out, but well, that's only because that's only because David Thewlis is like three feet taller than Gary Oldman. (laughs) Kind of weird. Uh, But this scene was great, though, in the movie. There's a lot of pushback, though, from the trio, and they don't believe what Lupin is saying. They don't believe that Lupin is even a good person at this point, especially Harry, who's really upset with the fact that uh, he trusted Lupin, and Lupin at this point is is coming off as sort of a traitor, in a sense. And Hermione reveals that Lupin is a werewolf, uh, and Ron even shows a bit of pure-blood bias when he tells Lupin to get away from me, werewolf. Uh, because Lupin goes to him um, when Ron tries to get up and he looks like he's in a lot of pain. Lupin goes to try and help. And I think that for a second there, I forget exactly what it says in the book, but it really struck a chord with Lupin, um, you know, to be talked to that way. Yeah. Uh, but Lupin finally gets to explain himself and tells that he saw them tonight on the Marauder's map and that another was with them at Hagrid's hut. And I was wondering, though, this kind of goes to... Um, something that was brought up earlier, but would Lupin, when you were talking about Buckbeak seeing uh, the other Harry and Hermione, would Lupin have seen doubles of Harry and Hermione on the Marauder's map? That's very, very good question. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. They might. I mean, he might. Logically, like, you would think yes. Because here we've got canon that that Lupin has was looking on the map when they were all in Hagrid's hut, and later they go back and are in back of Hagrid's hut when they're in Hagrid's hut. Right. So. It makes sense. Unless the forest line, the tree line outside Hagrid's hut is the end of the grounds and would be therefore just off the map. <laughs> you sound like you are you would be J.K. Rowling trying to explain away <laughs> this little situation. Uh, but we do learn a lot um, in, in this little conversation that takes place here. And uh, we learn that he also saw Sirius and the altercation that ensued, and that Black dragged two people into the underground passage. Uh, and that Lupin knows how to work the map and reveals he is one of its creators, Mooney. And uh, at this point, we also realize that he knows James Potter a lot better than he initially let on. And that becomes evident in the next chapter. And and the final thing that happens is what we already talked about, that the other person that he's been referring to throughout the course of this conversation is Peter Pettigrew. uh, Peter Pettigrew. Who is, in fact, Ron's rat, Scabbers. And that is the big reveal. And it's like, oh my god. That, and that was Cat, Rat, and Dog. And I think the next chapter is Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs. If I'm this is such a good correct. series of chapters that's yes. coming up. So that's a huge... And that's part of the reason why we decided to break up these chapters into sets of two. Because these chapters right. are, are really big in terms of a lot of the, the storyline that gets revealed. 
the backstory of the Marauders. So that's it for our chapter analysis this week. Now it's time for quote quiz, 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 quiz. That was still really dangerous. Running around in the dark with a werewolf. What if you'd What if you'd given the others the slip and bitten somebody? Hermione. Yeah. That just sounds that's... like something she would say. Exactly. Yeah, it was like, Especially uh... the that's really dangerous part. If I took that part out, maybe it would have been. That was a risk. That's really dangerous. That's a Hermione giveaway. Um. Anyway, let's move on now to Muggle Mail. I'll take the first email. It's from Jamie Zubernis. Zubernis? It's from Jamie Zubernis13 of Lagrange, Georgia. She's talking about book one and seven parallels. Dear MuggleCast, I just recently started listening to your show, and I took your suggestion of listening to episode 114, the parallel one. I found it very interesting, and I have another similarity. The Resurrection Stone and the Philosopher's Stone seem very similar to me. They both defy death and only seem powerful to those who fear death. I just wanted to point that out, and if you guys could analyze it more for me, that would be great. Thanks to keep up the great work. That's another great one. Yeah, that's a good one. A crucial stone in books one and seven. They are parallel. Books one and seven, books two and six, books three and five, and book four is sort of just... You know, it's interesting. Laura would be proud. Yeah. She would. Yeah. We'll pass that along and, and to Jamie her. And Jamie has asked us to analyze further. So, do you guys have anything about that? Not really. I think Jamie's just being a little lazy, to be honest. Make oh, us do yeah. all the thinking. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's not well, much was, else to say. Like, I mean, it's just that's another good example of a parallel. I mean, if you if you have the Philosopher's Stone and you make the Elixir of Life, you'll never actually see the loved ones of yours who've passed away because you're cheating death. Um, so, you won't be with them. And in the Resurrection Stone, you turn it, and it shows you, like, these people, but they're not real, and they're not like natural and yeah i think yeah to your point there's there's something similar there the resurrection stone uh wasn't it can only really be used by the true master of death or was that the elder wand um but there's something about that you know that that the the resurrection stone is is can only be commanded or to be used by the, the master of death and kind of uh, what's the expression that Dumbledore says about the the Sorcerer's Stone is that the only person who who can attain it is the one who just wants to have it or, or to get it as opposed to want to use it? You know, I don't think it was clear to me about the Resurrection Stone, about what it did. You know, it, the story of the three brothers says, you know, it'll bring like their their images back. Um, it's not natural. They're They're not really of this world to begin with, so it's not the same. Maybe they smell. Maybe they make weird noises at night. I don't know what these these images visions do, but don't when when they appear to Harry in book seven, don't they just they walk with him for a while? They you know make him help him make that decision, and then they just disappear. Yeah, they're just shadows, I think, of of their former selves. So it's 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 just very interesting. But you know, uh, as for what the Resurrection Stone actually does do, but um, the Philosopher's Stone seems to have you know better results because it kept Nick Flamel uh, alive for six hundred odd years. So there's some analysis for you. Next email from Jan, 19 of California. So I was listening to the chapter-by-chapter segment of episode 195 for Prisoner of Azkaban, and it got to the part where you were discussing Harry's dream where he goes into the forest. Someone made a comment, I'm not sure who, but they mentioned that perhaps Harry entered the forest to search for his identity. I thought this was particularly... I thought this was particularly interesting because it reminded me of something my English teacher told us about romance. Not love, but of the literary genre. She said that in a romance, 
which the Oxford English Dictionary defines as a medieval tale dealing with a hero of chivalry. A knight must go on a quest, which is usually through the forest, in order to find his identity. She further explained that the forest is like a metaphor for the mind, which is interesting since Harry is dreaming. And the forest does continue to play a vital role throughout the series. Just thought I would add that to this, to the discussion. Hmm. The forest plays a vital role throughout the series, and also so does Harry's mind, if yeah, you think about it. Yeah, and Joe has talked about the forest in the Harry Potter series a lot before. Um, as recently as the J.K. Rowling documentary called J.K. Rowling, The Year in the Life. It's on the Half-Blood Prince DVD. She talks oh, please, about... it's like three years old. <laughs> well, but, but, you know, that's the most recent <laughs> yeah, yeah, thing I could think yeah. of. Um, yeah. Joe talks about the forest, how much she loves a forest because it's so dynamic. You can do a lot in a forest. And so that connects to, to what Chan's talking about. And, I mean, I'm sure Joe has taken those... Uh, that definition that you brought up to us about romance, um, the same way. I think yeah. I think there's a lot you could analyze there. Yeah, that's very cool. Next one is from Amber T, age 20, from Alameda, California. Uh, just quick comment. You said that Lupin didn't really need to confiscate the Marauder's Map from Harry because Sirius already knew the secret passageways. However, the map also shows where people are on the Hogwarts grounds at all time. Assuming that Lupin believed Sirius was indeed out to kill Harry, Sirius could have used the map to wait until Harry was alone in a corridor or out on the grounds or for a time when the teachers were furthest away from Harry to attack him. Also, if Harry had the map, he would probably have been more tempted to sneak around and perhaps go after Sirius if he were to spot him on the map. So I believe Lupin's did confiscate it for Harry's protection and perhaps to have a way to know if Sirius was on the grounds before anybody else. Perhaps he wanted to try and talk some sense into his lunatic friend. I adore your show. Thank you for your time. We neglected that that the knowing someone's exact position could help uh, be elusive. That it wasn't, you know, the broadest map, the value of Sirius Black having it wasn't just for the passageways, which he already knew, um, but so that he could have real-time updates and where everybody was in the castle. Good point. Thank you... And that concludes, that concludes Muggle, Muggle Mail. Mail. Now to wrap up the show today, Chicken Soup for the MuggleCast Soul. This one comes from Taylor G, 19 of Richmond. Dear MuggleCasters, I have been a devoted listener to your show for two years, and all of you are my favorites. This chicken soup might be a little different than most, but for me, you guys keep me sane and entertained. I am currently pregnant with a little girl who I will be naming Ariana Christina. My boyfriend laughs at my Harry Potter obsession, and, I'm in my eight- and I am in my eighth month. Every night when I cannot sleep, I listen to past shows and paying attention to you all keeps my thoughts about my life at bay long enough for me to relax and fall asleep. During the day, I do the same thing when I am stuck inside, bored, knowing my friends are out doing things I can't. You make the time fly by so much faster. This is not the only time you've helped me in my life. Two years ago, my father, who was the only person in my home raising me, passed away from cancer, and your show was a blessing to me then, too. I don't know what I would do without you guys to take my mind off things, and I hope you know how much I and many others appreciate you. I love you all, especially Micah. Taylor James. Aww. That was very nice. Yeah, very nice. So she should she should name her daughter's she should give her daughter the middle name Micah. I was gonna should suggest be. Andrew A A C Andrea. No, but she Andrea. She said because it's a girl. She says she she loves us all, especially Micah. Yeah, but you don't want to so. give the the baby. It's a girl. Eric, you know, Ariana, Micah, Micah, Christina. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Maybe Mika or like or Michaela in honor of Micah, but not not Micah. Okay. What are you crazy? <laughs> 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 well, thanks, Taylor, and uh, we wish you and your baby girl well. Before we wrap up the show today, we want to remind you guys about a few announcements. 
Infinitus 2010 is coming up this July 15th to the 18th in Orlando, Florida. It's going to be held on the Universal Orlando Resort. Um, it's a big Harry Potter conference. We've been talking about it a lot. It's going to be the best one that HPEF has ever put on. This conference will include a live MuggleCast. They're going to have a special party inside the theme park exclusively for Infinitus attendees. Um, there's going to be a dance. There's going to be many uh, Potter podcasts. Um, po- Potter podcast, but Palooza? Potter Wizard Rock, uh, Wizard Rock. No Potter uh, panels. You know, like discussions about Harry Potter. Oh. You know, it's yeah. just a great way to meet and socialize and interact with other Harry Potter fans. So visit infinitus2010.org to uh, learn more details and to register. If you do register, for one, we can't wait to see you there. But also put MuggleCast in the referral box when you go to register so they know who sent ya. We did. We did. We did. Uh, don't forget the MuggleCast remix. All the details are on the MuggleCast website, MuggleCast.com. Eric needs your help. We're looking for your favorite moments, right, Eric? Yep. And uh, you can look for episode 197 of MuggleCast in about two weeks. So right around, let's say, oh, I don't know, April 29th, April 30th, maybe May 1st. So check it out. Uh, look forward MuggleCast to May. the next e- MuggleCast May. It's coming up, baby. Oh, and we should also mention we received our podcast award for the 2009 podcast awards. We did. We won it, MuggleCast won in the best entertainment category micah received the award it was delivered to his house just the other day thanks everyone who did vote for us we really really appreciate that and don't forget to vote for us every month on podcast alley uh, we appreciate your vote over there because it helps you know remind people uh, that harry potter is still big in the podcasting community don't forget to visit the mugglecast website mugglecast.com it's got all the information you need pertaining to this show you'll find our community outlets right there on the right side of the page you can follow us from there. You can follow us on Twitter, which is twitter.com slash MuggleCast. You can fan us on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash MuggleCast. And you can also vote for us once a month at Podcast Alley. Uh, you can read MuggleCast transcripts. You can download episodes, get full show notes, everything you need right there on MuggleCast.com. You can also fan us in Florida. Like, we will need people <laughs> oh, to, to fan us. <laughs> If you want to, if you want to you know, spend a day with the Mugglecasters, you know, just fan us there. But Andrew, uh, a really great point that you brought up because we do get emails about this from time to time from new listeners. Not all of our um, episodes show up in the iTunes feed, so if you're looking to listen to older episodes of the show, go to our website and download the podcast from the individual episodes page. All you have to do is right-click and download, and then you should be able to put that into your your iTunes player, right? Right. It won't go in the podcast folder, but it will go into iTunes. So you can still have it on your iPod or whatever you have. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you so much for your support. We really do appreciate it. We'll see you at the end of April for episode 197. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.